The Service to America Medals program, known as the SAMIs, and administered by the Partnership for Public Service, each year recognizes the most accomplished career civil servants. Here on the Federal Drive, we've been featuring interviews with SAMIs finalists each week since the spring. Well, tonight, the partnership will announce the winners at the Kennedy Center. And joining me with a preview, the president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, Max Steyer. Max, good to have you on. Thank you so much, Tom. You're awesome. It's amazing. You have been such a powerful voice of sharing these stories, and it's great to be back here with you. Thank you. And tonight, those attending, what can they expect to see? An amazing evening. I would never say that this is the best ever on deck because they're all so extraordinary, but it's the best ever. It really is a wonderful set of federal employees who are going to be honored here. We will have truly the top leadership of our government there to recognize them and to applaud them. And we will have an audience filled of admirers and leaders across sectors who care about effective government and will see it in real time. With all the conversation around government shutdowns, it brings really to the fore how vital it is for us to have a vibrant workforce that is represented by these honorees. And that point you made about the government leadership being there, I think that's really crucial. And will you have a good contingent of cabinet-level types of people? Because I think the awards have so much more meaning to the career civil servants when the political appointees or the executives above them at the agencies are also there to acknowledge this because it makes it that much more meaningful. 100% our expectations that I will have everyone from the White House Chief of Staff to the secretaries or the leaders of every agency that is being honored or that their employees are being honored, in addition to a virtual complete cabinet of deputy secretaries and others. So it really is a wonderful showing. And look, the reality is these jobs are incredibly hard, whether you're career or political. They're all serving the public. Oftentimes, the political appointees are focused on the policy announcement and not as much on the career people who are getting it done. And this is a testament to their recognition about how important supporting the workforce is. So it's encouraging and exciting. Yeah, they say management is the art of getting things done working through others. So the skilled political appointees understand if they want to get their agenda done, then they have got to support the standing career staff. You're exactly right. And it's the standing staff here right now and very importantly, investing in that next generation of federal employees. The reality is we don't have that in the pipeline right now, and it really is a leadership responsibility to invest in that future. I think it's also noteworthy that some of the SAMI's finalists are not necessarily elderly. (laughs) That is, they haven't been working for 25, 35, 45 years. I know that I interviewed one entomologist, Dr. Schmidt Jifris. She's 34 years old and has done amazing work at the Agriculture Department in helping crop safety for the Northwest apple producers by engineering insects that are there to devour the bad insects, this kind of thing. Only 34 years old. It's pretty amazing. It is. And we have an emerging leaders category where we try to highlight those folks that are under the age of 35 and nonetheless have done extraordinary work. And, you know, obviously there's the team that works for the hostage recovery office at the State Department. There's plenty of amazing folks that are younger entry in their career. I will tell you, we actually hired someone at the partnership to run our research efforts who was, I believe, year one emerging leader finalist. And just uh, yesterday, I spoke to 
as somebody who was another finalist who's got now a senior position at OPM running the new the new FEB Federal Executive Board network. So it's wonderful to see these people continue in government and perform at extraordinary levels. So you're right. I think it's a now proposition and a future proposition. We're speaking with Max Steyer, president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, and something we usually don't do in this format, but it's probably a good idea to acknowledge the corporate support that this program gets, because otherwise it wouldn't happen, the gala wouldn't happen, the awards, pretty complicated and long process you have for choosing these people. You don't pick them personally. So who are some of the top sponsors? Thank you. And you're right. Like the reality in the nonprofit world is you have a double bottom line. You are motivated by your mission, but you have to have the money to get it done. And we get support from individuals, from companies, from foundations, and from fee for service for government. On the corporate side, for SAMEs, we have everyone from Microsoft and Google on the technology side. Uh, SAIC is another huge sponsor of ours, Lockheed. And, you know, these are companies that recognize that an effective government and, frankly, a supported civil service is fundamental to their success and to our country's success. So it's wonderful to have them. And just getting back to the awardees and the work that they do, it's kind of amazing, and you can comment on this, that this work goes on, great work in large and small mission areas, lots of leverage. And it goes on throughout the political vicissitudes, operating it almost like in another planet of the government. But the day-to-day work is extraordinary and goes on no matter what's going on down the mall from wherever they might be. Look, I think that for many Americans, when you say the federal government, they think about bickering politicians in Washington. And that is, in my view, or not just in my view, the research we've done is, is the heart of why there is a reduction in trust in our government, which is a real problem. And the reality of it is that, as you just suggested, we have 2 million civil servants, 80% outside the Washington, D.C. area. You know, 40% of them are veterans. Like These are things that most Americans don't know, and they're working very hard with difficult circumstances on behalf of the public, doing things that really matter. And once more, the shutdown activities have really brought to the fore one of the extra challenges of being a public servant, the idea that you um, have the sort of Damocles over your head and, you know, you may be required to work uh, without pay or required not to work without pay until those bickering politicians do their job. Um, that's crazy. And it's uh, no way to run our government. And it, it hurts the American public. It frankly costs more to shut the government down than to keep it open and allow the public to get the great support that they deserve. And I'm trying to remember, has there ever been a Sammy's Awards Gala during a shutdown? There was uh, once, 2013. I will say that emotionally, it was incredibly powerful because, again, it was a embodiment of the stupidity of shutting the government down because here you had these amazing people who were delivering incredible services to the public and being told that they could not work. Michael Lewis, in his fifth risk uh, paperback volume, did a chapter on one of our Sammy's honorees who was furloughed and the loss that that involved. And it's craziness. It's really... It's the same thing as burning down your own house. It, it, it really makes zero sense, and it costs us all. And occasionally some members of Congress have been at the galas that I've attended, so maybe the more of them that get over there, the less likely they'll be to take that brinkmanship type of step. One would hope, and we expect we'll have you know several members at least uh, this time around, too. Max Steyer is president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. Have a great gala tonight, and uh, we'll catch you soon. Um, It's a pleasure and look forward to talking to you again. Thank you again for all that you do.
We'll post this interview along with all of our Sammy's finalist interviews at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across 
geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so, that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening 
two very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's gotta be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.